Hi guys, welcome back to the Earthly Delights podcast. Our guest this week is journalist Joshua Zitzer. Josh spoke candidly about his mental health journey, which at one point led him to losing the will to live, but it was a cry for help on Twitter that became the catalyst for him to turn things around. We also spoke about transgenerational trauma, which was passed down from his grandmother who was an Auschwitz survivor, and how that played a role in his battles with mental health. We spoke to Josh about anti-Semitism and why it's a more accepted form of racism and how he has become numb to the abuse. It was great to see Joshua's journey has gone full circle and I hope this conversation offers some humble inspiration to anyone who may be suffering now. Without further ado, here is Joshua Zitzer. Josh, welcome to the Earthy Delights podcast. Pleasure to have you. Um, what's the crack? How are we doing? We're doing, we're doing all right, thanks. How, how are you today? Not too bad. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I was saying before the uh, before the podcast that it feels on my end anyway like a long time in the waiting. Uh, Rosie, our friend, shout out to Rosie, hooked us up. Um, but yeah, she's kind of mentioned you and put you out in the ether, but then didn't give me your contact details for a while. So I'm uh, I'm glad we're finally getting to have this conversation. Um, but yeah, thanks for asking. Thanks, Rosie. <laughs> hey, hey, Rosie. <laughs> um, well, first and foremost, uh, before we get started on anything, um, I, I wonder, could you just give us a bit of a background um, about yourself, who you are, what you do, um, just for anyone who's not really familiar? Sure. So I am a journalist based in London. I mainly work on politics, news, current affairs, that sort of thing. But I also have an interest in mental health and anti-Semitism. Those are my two other areas I really focus on. Um, and I'm really looking forward to having our conversation today. Beautiful stuff. Um, for people who don't know, um, we'll put the links in the show notes. But you wrote um for last year's uh social um sorry um suicide awareness day, you wrote an article kind of detailing your own experience with uh with suicidal thoughts um and how Twitter actually became like your salvation as opposed to what many would think of as it being a real terrible place for mental health. Could you just kind of in almost summarize that the article that you wrote is just and, and tell us a bit a bit about your situation and, and the, your experience with it yeah so last year i was going through a really really tough time um i was struggling with lots of things i wasn't happy in a relationship i wasn't happy um with my job um i was really really struggling and i sort of i, I think the expression i lost the will to live really really applied um, I was struggling to be able to get the help that I needed because as anyone who has struggled before and tried to get help on the NHS knows, um, it could take a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's long waiting lists. Uh, people often try and delay getting back to you and delay helping you and offering you what you need. So I was really, really struggling and I sort of was kind of desperate for help. Um, and one one night when I was particularly desperate, I asked, basically, I made a cry for help on Twitter, um, asking if anybody could help me find the support I needed, be that, you know, a therapist I could speak to or a shoulder to cry on. I wasn't really sure what I was looking for. Um, I put the tweet out, which I thought I'm, I'm going to regret. People are going to think I'm weird for doing this. Um, it's such a stigmatized topic. Uh, it's going to make people feel uncomfortable. Um, but I was actually overwhelmed by the positive response I got. Almost instantly, I had people in my DMs saying, give me a ring. Um, 
I know this person who might be able to help you if you tried this helpline. Um, and that was sort of the start of my journey to getting better um, from having been in quite a desperate and, and, and dark place. Um, people on Twitter were able to sort of lead me in the right direction to get the support I needed. Mm. Am I right in thinking that these weren't necessarily all of your friends? Like some of these were quote unquote random followers and people you'd never actually met? Yeah, absolutely. Some of them were people I'd maybe only had a couple of interactions with on Twitter in the past um, who reached out and, and sort of, you know, offered their friendship. Um, and some of them now I've, I've actually become real life friends with. I met up for a drink with and, and have built a bond with. Um, so that was, you know, from quite a dark place, that was quite a, a hopeful and, and happy thing to come out of it. Josh, you, you mentioned that you weren't sure on what you were looking for when you, when you reached out on Twitter. Do you have a better idea now of what you were looking for? So I think there's a distinction with some people when it comes to sort of wanting to take their own life. There are some people who who do want to take their own life. And there are others who have simply lost the world to live and can't foresee getting on to the next day. I think I was in, in sort of the second situation in the sense that I, I didn't want to take my life, but I couldn't see how I could go on. So I was sort of hoping that people could help me find that reason to keep going or, or give me the strength to keep going. Um, because I didn't, I didn't want to take my own life. I just couldn't see how I could carry on. I understand. And the the feedback you got from from all all of these people, what did that give you that you didn't have before? In that, was it just that? Yes, I, I missed this connection. I missed to the like the the feeling that I'm connected with other people. Did I miss? Did I forget that the world can be a wonderful, generous place at times? Or was it just a multiple of things? I think it was a mix of things. I think it it gave me sort of, like, like you said, sort of a more hopeful sort of perspective of, of what the world can be like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think practically um, it meant I was put in touch with a really, really helpful um, helpline who I spoke to pretty much daily during my recovery, um, which you know, was a lifesaver, literally. Um, and I think, you know, I had a lot of individual people saying, you know, you've got purpose, you you would be missed. And I think that really meant a lot to me and sort of gave me the motivation to keep fighting. Mm. Jo- Josh, one of the, I suppose, the obvious questions um, would be, how, why did it take going to Twitter? Why, why weren't you or able to open up to friends or family why was it why did it lead to twitter was were these conversations um taboo you said that they were stigmatized were they stigmatized within your own friendship groups and family so i was able to speak to my parents about it and my parents were sort of on my journey with me of trying to get help on the nhs but right alas that was to no success and i think i kind of didn't want to burden my friends with it yeah, I think they had an idea that I was struggling, but I didn't want to burden them with, you know, the real darkness and depths of what I was going through. And I think it sort of just reached the point where I was desperate for help, but I'd left it too long to let people know truly what I was going through. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And when when they found out, obviously, I'm assuming via your Twitter post, did any of them, I'm sure all of them almost, would have reached out and actually said to you, you know, please don't ever feel like you couldn't have told me whatever it is that you need to tell me. Uh, was that like reassuring that process and, and in, for the future now to know that actually, no matter what you're going through, you could always open up to your friends, no matter how dark it may be? Yeah, for sure. I think... Um... I think part of why I probably didn't tell them as well as the burdening thing was, you know, I didn't want to embarrass myself. I didn't want judgment. Um, and I didn't receive judgment from any of them. I received real empathy and um, kindness. Um, and I think moving forward, you know, touch wood, I'll never be in that situation again. Um, but I know that I can approach them and I won't be judged because afterwards when when they did find out, they were all so lovely once again a shout out to rosie who we mentioned earlier (laughs) she was fantastic as were all my other friends which i was really grateful for Mm. you know sometimes i think uh, i recently read a a book where the author charles eisenstein was talking about the kind of pressure on western society and people in the western society to be quote-unquote independent and for, for a lot of things, this is important, you know, to be able to cook for yourself, to be able to get enough money to have lights and, and a place to shelter, et cetera, et cetera. But I think maybe perhaps we're, we're pushing it too far and that, like, we can reach a point where even though we are surrounded by lovely friends and family, we, we somehow think that, no, I mean, like, I got I to gotta fix with this on my own or this is my own thing. And I, I think it's fascinating because I also – I I, I I felt similar reluctancy to talk to some people as well um, about certain topics. And it, it, it's actually, I don't know, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing your answer. It's For me, it was actually the flip, like the reluctance is, oh, I don't want to put pressure on these people. I don't want to burden these people. But actually what happened with me is that the connection with these people grew stronger because I was able to, you know, quote unquote, bear the soul or really be vulnerable. And did you find this also? I think that's right. I think that that thing about independence is is really, you know, rings true for me. I think, um, you know, there's this fear of interrupting other people's lives when you're going through hell mm-hmm. and thinking, I just need to, you know, keep calm and carry on and get on with it, yeah. which sometimes just isn't possible. Um, and I think you're right. I think once I was able to open up and, and sort of, you know, the elephant in the room was no longer there we could talk openly about it um it did create a stronger bond and those bonds are important in life Mm. i think it's it's really interesting because um we know we're three guys here and we've all at some stage had a reluctancy to open up to certain people um and and you know i think that's reflected in the fact that you see i think men are 1.8 more times likely to take their own life um than women and you know it's not to say that women don't suffer with mental health of course with mental health problems of course they do but i think generally speaking they're much more willing to just talk about things and on the on the opposite end they're much more willing to listen as well uh and as guys like you said this whole idea of burdening someone else with our problems is a real thing i mean i I myself with my own girlfriend she knows me better than anyone and i didn't want to tell her some of the darkest things because i I didn't want her to know on a daily level how i was feeling because i was like you said burdening her then the minute i opened up 
this is a girl who's gone through therapy, studied therapy, couldn't be better place to help me. Um, and is my girlfriend just to add another level to it. And once I opened up it, I, I realized what I'm basically what an idiot I was for thinking that way. But I understood why I did think that way. The, the one thing that I found um, when I opened up to people was I really, you, we spoke about the bond, but specifically and um, the brotherhood that I kind of, um forged or or strengthened should i say with like my my male mates was something that i really really valued because i already knew that like my girlfriends rosie again another shout out for people like that i could talk to them quite easily and i knew that they would always be there to listen that was never a doubt in my mind but with the lads there was always this thing of like ah we've never like no one has ever said anything about anyone's personal life in that sense even though like my some of my mates have had divorced parents or whatever it may be none of us have really ever we've only ever kind of given the vague oh well my parents are divorcing or whatever it may be but they've never gone into details and i was like i don't want to be the first one and then once i started doing that i realized that they would open up to me as well in the same conversation and then it's just created a real brotherhood where i feel like these guys now are there for life and there's nothing that we I wouldn't help them with or they wouldn't help me with. And I wondered, like, did you see that difference, especially with like your male friends, um, when you kind of opened up? Yeah, I I definitely did. I think once I'd opened up, I had, you know, male friends come up to me being like, Thank you for talking about it. I've I've been looking for somebody to talk to about it. And then, you know, would open up to me, I'd open up to them more. And and like you said, you build this really strong brotherhood, this really strong connection. And I think it's important for men to talk about it with each other because we share the same insecurities about opening yeah. up, be it burdening others, be it, you know, looking weak or emotional and, and those fears. Largely speaking, we will share the same insecurities. So it could be quite comforting to open up to each other. I think I think you're exactly right on that. Mm. Uh, Joshua, uh, my friend Will, who's been on the podcast, he says uh, he's on a road to recovery and he says that it's easy to get clean, but it's hard to stay clean. And I'm wondering for you, are then was the this point where you had this outpouring fantastic? It was it was great, but also have you now implemented things into your daily routine, perhaps that uh, help you maybe maintain a certain level of mental health? Um, since sure, so. Fortunately, I was eventually able to get therapy and I make sure that I do therapy once a week. I do it religiously. I see it like, you know, some people might see going to the gym or something. It's a, <laughs> it's a mental workout for me and I think it, it levels and stabilizes me. And, it, you know, I try and check in on myself every day, but I have that, that designated time in a week where I get to check in on myself and I get essentially somebody to check in on me. Mm-hmm. Um I think also, you know, there are little things I do day to day to make sure that I'm sort of recovered. And that's, you know, I make sure I speak to a good friend every day. I think in mm. these times of quarantine and work from home and stuff, it can be easy to forego that. But I really make sure that I have a positive experience with a friend every day. Um, I try and stay active, all of those sorts of things. And I think those are those are sort of the things which I try and do ritualistically um, and I try to make them normal for me because I think they're important for me uh, staying level-headed. And, and Josh, I, 
I wonder, you know, um, a lot of people who, who go through grief, um, they talk about how when, you know, the person, their loved one passes away, there's this outpouring of support and love and, and, and it's a great thing. But then obviously as time goes on, that starts to wane and then, you know, eventually people just carry on with their normal lives and you're kind of expected to just carry on with yours. And some people find it really hard and, and they still have that grief and they still need that support network. But obviously, you know, for whatever reason, their friends and family, whatever may have slightly withdrawn that because they need to focus on their own lives and, and they can really struggle with that idea. Have, have, have you found that? Because obviously, as Jim said, like kind of when you open up on Twitter, you got all the, all of these messages, all of this, this outpour of emotion and people telling you how much they love you. And I wonder if, like you said, it's a constant battle to stay, kind of mentally tip top i wonder if, if you've seen almost that retraction of support or, or if you think your friends and, and your family have kept that ever present um i think my friends are more conscious of of signs that i might not be doing well so there are moments where they will reach out and just check in on me but it's obviously not constant or uber frequent but it's enough just to know that your friends are, are there and looking out for you. At the, at the end of the day, it's my journey and I want their support, but I don't need them to go on the full extent of my journey too. Yeah. I can see why people would struggle with, you know, that outpouring of, of love and, and help and then, and then sort of the retreat of that. But I think um, I've, I've had a good amount of support less frequently, but it's, it's been enough for me. Mm. That's, that's that's good personally been enough for me that's good to hear it's good to hear yeah i'm interested in you mentioned kind of um briefed at the start the re some of the reasons leading you in in onto this journey and what led you to to reaching out onto twitter um but one of the one of the things that you've written about and obviously suffered with is anti-semitism um and i was wondering if you thought that that led to your or, or was a was a factor that led or one of the factors that led to your depression and ultimate kind of um, cry for help on Twitter and, and how you have gone about, if so, how have you gone about to try and, I don't know, reduce its power over you or, or to not let it affect you so much? I think there are sort of two things to look at there. I think the first thing is, you know, there's anti-Semitic trolling online and stuff and that's, you know, the nasty side of social media i spoke to you earlier mm. about how there's a positive side too but that's the nasty side unfortunately i sort of because i've i've written about it so long and i've experienced it for so long i've grown somewhat numb to it um and that doesn't massively affect my mental health obviously it doesn't make me feel good but i'm able to sort of stay on top of it and be rational and respond in sort of a fairly rational way um I think the way anti-Semitism might have impacted my mental health is through something called uh, transgenerational intergenerational trauma. Um, so the idea, I've done sort of some research into it and I've done a podcast called Handed Down um, about it. And that's the idea that, you know, trauma can be passed down through the generations. They say up to six or seven generations. Um, and my grandmother was a Auschwitz survivor. So... You know, I think there's definitely a real chance that a lot of my anxieties and a lot of my, my depression probably is somewhat impacted by my family history. Um, 
yeah so i think i think you know that that's an interesting thing which i sort of been exploring as part of my journey as well and, and sort of looking at and working out how um i can address that yeah we mentioned before the podcast how a lot of people that haven't really done some research or reading around this area sniff it off as, as nonsense or pseudoscience or something like this and i'm interested to see how has how has uh your circle of friends or your circle of fellow journalists how have they reacted to you speaking about this because i don't hear too many people talk about it yeah i think my friends have actually been responsive and, and eager to learn about it i think you know there are two strands of it there's the idea that sort of trauma is inherited through behaviors and and you know observing the anxieties and the neuroticism of the generation above that that normalizes that for you and then you have those there's that element the behavioral side and then there's the epigenetic side which is you know saying that it's in our genes and it's passed down the trauma through that way that side's a little bit more controversial and that side you know they're still doing research into they're not sure how true it is although there is there is some evidence there but i think um the behavioral side um, anyone who comes from a family which has been impacted by trauma will look into sort of intergenerational trauma and the sort of effects it can have and really recognize them. It could be things like, you know, hoarding things or overfeeding or underfeeding or anxiety about people leaving the house or going on trips. These are the sort of things which result and are impacted by intergenerational trauma, which I think, you know, you can observe in families. Um, and my friends have been really interested to hear about that. My family have even been interested to hear about that and sort of recognize the, the, the things that we might have picked up as a result of my, my grandmother's experiences. That's fantastic to hear because I, like, I, I, love, I love my dad. I don't know how much he would. And I, I'm sure there would be an initial um, resistance to accepting this idea that perhaps there is uh, something bigger a play like that it's not it's so it's you know the idea again of like independence like this was entirely my life but we could have easily picked up things for, from childhood or from previous generations um yeah i i also wanted to ask you you mentioned the 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 positives and negatives of social media and obviously you're a journalist which which requires you kind of in the 2020 year that we live in you need to be on social media. You need to see the what's going on. I'm wondering, do you then feel that journalists are maybe a bit more vulnerable than other professions in in experiencing some of this kind of uh, like it's so hard. I've been, I, you know, for a while I've been trying to come up with some sort of a a, a word to describe the this the kind of dreariness slash like pessimism slash tiredness of just an average 20 minute uh scroll to the the, the twitter feed or and yeah I'm, I'm i'm very interested to hear about the journalist perspective because it's it, it's it's your job you have to be there and so i'm sure that requires you to be on there more than the average person and yeah i'd love to hear about that yeah yeah i, I you're right i spent my life on social media <laughs> Um, mainly for my job, uh, also <laughs> just because I'm addi addicted, I think. Um, yeah, there is, 
I mean, I think as a journalist, you're often looking for quite sort of heartbreaking things on social media and you're often exposed to quite traumatic things. And I think sometimes it can be hard at the end of the day to sort of step back and be like, gosh, I've really had a, a rough day of, you know, looking at shootings and protests and death and destruction. Um, and I think that can be, yeah, no, that, that can be distressing and that can be difficult. And I think you have to be kind to yourself after a day of work. Um, I think also, you know, as a journalist, you're likely to get abuse from other people on social media. That sort of is part and parcel of the job. Um, and I think whilst you grow and get used to it, it's never nice and it impacts your day. And I think a lot of journalists sort of just, you know, suck it up, take it on the chin and, and think it's part of the job. But I think there is um, a lot of importance to recognising that it's not normal and it can be harmful. And you need to give your, yourself a chance at the end of the day to log off social media and to tune in with yourself and be kind to yourself. I don't think many journalists do. And I think from my experience, there's quite a few um, mental health challenges in the industry um, because journalists aren't being supported and are dealing with quite traumatic issues. Mm. This is another thing about the, the, the journalist profession is that it's it's very often um, like contract work or somewhat independent where it's not like you have security, like this is my income for the next six months or 12 months, which again must add to the the, bur the burden or the difficulty to maintain some sort of, yeah, totally. And um, I'm wondering <laughs> if you're a member of some sort of uh, like a journalist group that where you guys can check in with each other. Because sorry, we we just had an interview uh, with with Umar from Dope Black Dads, and, and he said how um, how reassuring and reaffirming it was to have to just to be in a group around people in a similar position to you, and you can express how you feel, and they go, yeah, I'm feeling you today, or let's meet up and let's have a chat about it, because you know I think I think we all need something like that. So, I mean, I wish there was a group for journalists to discuss our mental health openly and all give each other hugs when we needed one. I mean, that would be great. Um, as far as I'm aware, they don't exist. But I am. I did a. I did a master's in journalism. And I'm in a WhatsApp group with some of my good friends from that, and we sort of all check in on each other and sort of discuss our qualms with the industry and you know our, our daily challenges. I'm also, there are wider freelance, I'm, I'm freelancing at the moment as a journalist. Like you were saying, there's job insecurity and exploitation from various publications and it can be a tough job. Um, and there are plenty of freelance groups where people do occasionally open up about, you know, their difficulties and their struggles and their emotions. But I think often these groups have, you know, 50, 60, 70 odd people so it might be a little intimidating to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Josh, you mentioned how obviously with the with the job, it's part of the job to kind of look at distressing uh, material almost all day long. Um, obviously, depending on what you're writing about, but you also touched on the fact that obviously you get comments um, and I think nowadays especially where everyone because back in the day you could write something in a newspaper and then you could go about your life kind of anonymously and there was no one unless they really wanted to write a letter in and send it to the publication you weren't really going to get much vitriol um, 
in, in, in return. But nowadays it feels like with the click of a button, we can send whatever we want to send. Um, and, you know, we touched on anti-Semitism, but I didn't want to let this pass. Why do you think we as a society find anti-Semitic abuse um, more accepted and i put that in quote marks for people who can't see but you know we all understand that racism is a terrible thing the blm movement has been has been a, a wonderful movement and hopefully it produces real change but yet we saw for example and i know you wrote about it with wiley um kind of professing how the whole music industry is controlled by these rich jews and you know this that and the other and that's something that we often hear about you hear about it in hollywood as well that the jews have and even the term the jews but they have this kind of control over certain sectors and this that and the other and they're very often just accepted it's just oh yeah that's just, yeah whatever and twitter we saw with wiley twitter did hardly anything until it's real um there was real kind of vitriol on Twitter to ban Wiley, but they left those tweets up for a good couple of days. Uh, why is it more accepted? Why don't you, why do you think that we don't find it so offensive? I mean, first of all, I, I, I think, I mean, I don't think social media platforms are taking any form of racism uh, seriously mm -hmm. enough. Um, I think, you know, we were talking about BLM and sort of you know, anti-racism protests then. I, I don't think in, in the months after that, when it's no longer been sort of a situation where you get people virtue signaling about it, there's been enough allyship or enough action from social media platforms. Um, but I do think, like you were saying, that anti-Semitism is, is, is sort of quite different in the sense that people think of it as punching up, which in itself is based on anti-Semitic tropes. People think it's okay to be anti-Semitic because they are, you know, in their minds, um, punching up against, you know, an elitist privileged group. Um, right. But of course, that relies upon an anti-Semitic trope itself, that all Jews are powerful and rich, which isn't the truth. You know, there are plenty of Jews who are not. There are plenty of Jews who are. There are plenty of Jews who are not white, who, you know, experience, you know, intersectional, um, because of intersectionality experience, other forms of prejudice too. Um, but I think people think it's acceptable because they think they're, they're punching up at this group, which, as I said, relies on anti-Semitic tropes and relies on a fundamental misunderstanding of, of, of who Jews are. Mm. Do you, I mean, you spoke about um, your your grandmother who was an Auschwitz survivor and I, I've been to Auschwitz uh, and I mean, it is harrowing. Uh, I think I actually, I, I want, I feel like everyone should, go there at some point I th because it really doesn't matter how many books you read about world war ii or anything or how, how knowledgeable you are about it until you go there and you see the scratch marks on the wall and the boxes of hair and shoes and the luggage with people's names on it and, and everything else you can't really imagine what people have gone through that said one thing that i've always found really uh bewildering i think is you see people who go to Auschwitz or they go to the um when they go to Berlin and there's that I forget what it's called now but the um there's that center the center of Berlin where they have all the pillars to, for commemoration yeah. of, of all the people who died um and you see people taking pictures but not pictures in the sense of like oh we should take a picture of Auschwitz so I can remember the tower or the train tracks but taking pictures of them smiling at the event um, and I, it kind signs of signs in front of it yeah, <laughs> exactly and I always I, it, it bewilders me because I'm like do you not understand what you're where you are and how 
I know selfies, I'm, I'm not one for selfies, but they've overtaken the world. But how in this particular circumstance, I mean, this is so clearly so wrong because you're literally standing in a place where millions of people have died. Um, and what I can't understand is that it's so close in reality. Like you said, your grandmother. I mean, we're not talking of something that happened thousands of years ago and there's atrocities throughout humanity. We are talking about people who we could have spoken to, you know, if we were lucky enough to meet some of these survivors. Why don't... Why don't we take it? I feel like we kind of dismiss the Jewish suffering, and I'm not. You kind of mentioned it briefly there about the white thing. I, my, one of my suspicions is that because Jewish people can kind of maybe they're not so obvious to tell. There's not an obvious physical difference. I think sometimes we kind of feel like, oh, there's not really suffering. Whereas with black people, we can talk about slavery and you can see a black person. You can obviously go, oh, there they are. But then with white people, it kind of assimilates in, and we kind of just dismiss the suffering why do you think that is oh that's uh, i don't <laughs> know i think but uh, <laughs> i think i think it's I'm, I'm always keen to sort of make the point that not all jews are white um, yes and there is a history of making jews appear not white so i mean you can see me now on video mm -hmm. i'm definitely white presenting i have yeah. blue eyes i have light brown hair i look white um but a lot of jews use the word white parsing because there is a history of othering Jews as non-white. So if you look at someone sort of like Disraeli, the first Jewish prime minister, um, you know, he was referred to as Oriental, as black even. Um, and, you know, our ethnicity has always been used, used against us. We've always, you know, had us being separate from white people because, you know, we've been othered as an ethnic minority and, and persecuted for that. So... There's that. And then there's also the fact that, you know, you have Jews from North Africa, you have Jews from the Middle East, um, you have Jews from from all over who aren't white, even even white presenting. Um, so I think that complicates things a little bit. But I think um, when it comes down to people not sort of recognising the suffering, I, I think it's just people don't realise how close it is. Because they learn about it in a history book and it's just another page of the history book. I think, you know, the people who have been fortunate enough to meet survivors be that you know, family, friends, or through a talk at their school, suddenly realise the um, proximity of it um, and, you know, how it could happen again at some point. So I think while survivors are still alive, it's so important for people to meet them um, or, or, like you said, go to places like Auschwitz to realise that, it, you know, my grandma only passed away a couple of years ago. Um, some of her friends who survived Auschwitz are still around. And I think a conversation with them can make it stand out from just being a page in the history book and can make you realise that, you know, the suffering was recent and, and, and the suffering to some extent is still going on. Mm. You spoke about how with the um, intergenerational um, trauma, how actually some of the people who are most interested in it were actually your own family. Um, I wonder, have you ever had, I'm sure you must have, conversations with them, your parents, cousins, aunties, uncles, uh, and what have they kind of retrospectively now that they know about it gone, oh yeah, that happens, that, that's always happened, I just thought it was like a family thing, or I just thought that's what I do, but now I understand that that is because of my grandma or, or whatever it may have been. Oh, I mean, absolutely. We've had those conversations and sometimes they're quite funny and sometimes they're quite alarming. Um, mm. But I think there are little ones we've recognised. So I remember when I was doing my research into intergenerational and transgenerational trauma, um, 
I went to the Holocaust Survivor Center in Hendon, which is a center where those who are still surviving the Holocaust, also second generation survivors, can meet and eat meals and listen to music and, and all sorts of lovely things like that. Um, and one of the people who worked there said that they always have a bread bowl out because they noticed that the survivors were, you know, taking bread and stuffing it in their bags. They were sort of like hoarding food. Um, mm. And what was even more interesting about that was that their children were doing that as well. And then their grandchildren were as well. They always thought, you know, if you go to a hotel and, you know, you've got an all-you-can-eat breakfast, put a few pastries away in your bag for, for safekeeping. It was something which sort of developed in the camps and became so normalised that the kids and the grandkids um, sort of picked up these habits. Um, and then you look at now, sort of when we were going into lockdown, I was speaking to a few um, people who therapists who work with survivors the other day, and they were saying, you know, people were hoarding, people were going to Tesco's and buying four bottles of oil and 10 things of toilet roll and stuff, because it was this anxiety about not being able to predict what could happen tomorrow or, or having everything taken away from you, this, this underlying neurosis and anxiety that, that had sort of manifested itself a generation or two or three down the line. And was worse, and particularly at a time when I suppose a lot of people were being advised not to, but were still, um, you know, hoarding and, and preparing for the an uncertain and unpredictable future. Did Did you recognise any of the traits in, in yourself? You said so you go through therapy, and obviously you've done a lot of research into it. Did you, by talking to people, kind of realise, oh, this is a thing that I thought as Josh did, so it was kind of just a part, inherent part of me. But now I realise that subconsciously, it's actually been passed down through the generations, and and then therefore maybe even tried to work to stop that. Or yeah, so I used to suffer really badly with panic attacks. Um, as soon as I was in a busy space with lots of people, or I was in a in like a queue or, or sort of anything like that, I would have a panic attack and I can never really pinpoint it down because I didn't personally have any traumas with big groups of people or with, with queues um, until after my project, I spoke to my mum about it and she said, oh yeah, I get that too. And I realized growing up, I'd seen that with her. And then my grandma had also experienced that too. And my brother, and it was something that we all sort of experienced and when we sort of realise, oh, perhaps that's something that, you know, was passed down because we're all going through uh -huh. it, um, it became quite obvious. And I think, you know, with my therapist, I worked through that and tried to sort of, you know, work out why that might be happening. Perhaps it was inherited, but but what could I do to sort of, you know, calm myself in those situations? Um, and that was interesting to recognise sort of this this mental health challenge that was in three generations of my family. Very interesting. Are you familiar with the work of Gabor Mate? <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna have to remind me. <laughs> uh, I think you'll love this guy. He talks uh, extensively about trauma, and he had a podcast just before or just after the lockdown, and he was talking about how if for, for people who are experiencing some sort of like a panic attack or some sort of anxiety, or they they feel some sort of strong insecurity as a result of the uh, lockdown. That, that 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 this was actually always present within you. It just wasn't um, s such a, a triggering occurrence beforehand. Triggering, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you wonder, like, maybe do you think subconsciously you you try to stay away from these potential triggers? Yeah, I I think so. I I think 
I think everyone is, I mean, there'll be very few people who haven't had sort of any mental health challenges they had beforehand um, worse than during this period. Because like you say, there are just so many more triggers and there's so much uncertainty and anxiety in the air um, and no real definitive answer as to when it will end. Um, so I think, I think, yeah, I, I, I certainly noticed things in myself during lockdown that I was like, right, I didn't realize I was that bad with this sort of thing, which I'm sure, I'm sure you could probably both relate to as well. Yeah, for sure. I think it's been a moment to reset for pretty much the whole world, I think, and uh, to do a bit, have a point of reflection. I wonder, we're talking about, we're talking about intergenerational um, trauma, but one thing, kind of one obvious thing that stands out to me when you talk about your grandmother, and then you talk about your own story, is that the essence of being a survivor and i wonder if you think that inherent um inner strength that obviously your grandmother had to go through one of the most horrific ordeals in human history if that is almost has been passed down just like any just like you were talking about the intergenerational um traumas and whether you think the fact that you survived your own personal ordeal has something to do with this inner strength that obviously runs through your family i mean very possibly i think you know my grandma was the most resilient woman i've ever met in my life um and probably would be the most resilient person most people had met to mm survive what she survived and then live a relatively normal life and bring up you know a happy successful family um it's pretty astonishing and i suppose i've always had her as um sort of somebody i've looked up to and perhaps you know i i have inherited some of that resilience obviously in situations which are totally incomparable mm. um but yeah I think you do feel a guilt as sort of the grandchild of survivors as well, that, you know, what you're going through isn't as bad as what, what she went through. So you have no right to complain. So when things do get bad, you, you feel a bit sort of like a spoiled brat. And I know that's something, having spoken to other second and third generation survivors, um, that people struggle with. Um, and it takes a while for you to not feel like an imposter um, and to validate your feelings as being real and painful. Um, very few of us, if, any, if, if not, you know, none of us will, will hopefully go through um, what my grandparents and what our grandparents' generations had to go through. Um, that doesn't invalidate our experiences and the pain we suffer. Um, and I think it's important to remind yourself of that. And that's something I have struggled with in the past. So whilst I have, you know, hopefully developed some resilience from her, you do often think, listen, I'm here depressed because of a crappy relationship and I hate my job um, mm. and I've got loads of other stuff going on. And you think, do I have any reason to complain? But the reality is you do. Um, it's yeah. all relative and you're allowed to feel valid in your feelings. And then that could be something, you know, which is hard to, hard to get to. Josh, yeah, I I'm so happy you said that because – a friend of mine uh, who is not in your situation, but he would often say, oh, I know for sure it could be a lot worse. As if to say, like you said, like it's almost like it's it's not uh, a slip that you can then um, ignore or not 
uh, trust your feelings. Like you still feel this way and it's important to, to recognize this, accept this and then, and try go about it. And, and I've seen that many times that people think, oh, I know it could be worse. It could be worse. But as an excuse to kind of like bypass the feeling that they're really experiencing. My friend used a good term the other day. He said, it's, it's not depression Olympics. You're not competing to be the most depressed or to have the worst situation. Um, yes. You know, there is always going to be somebody who's worse off than you. Always. Um, and that's horrible. And you should do everything you can to help people who are worse off than you. But the reality is, if you're struggling, you're struggling. And that's something you need to attend to. Mm. I, I, I'm really glad you touched on it because I think there's been some quite dangerous talk in the media about how maybe our generation is like a weaker generation because the this whole kind of notion that well anxiety levels are, are high are, and i'm talking before covid you know anxiety levels are higher depression rates are higher this that and the other and yet in every numerical way possible we are living in the safest and therefore best time in humanity's history so how how does that tally and i've always thought like you said it's got nothing to do with the fact that we're in a really good time i think it's the fact that as a generation we're much more aware of what these feelings mean and we're much more um ready to actually find a solution for that rather than just accepting that as a status quo whereas you know my, my dad or or many people in my family i look back now and i go that was depression what they were going through that was clearly and i'm not a, I'm not a doctor by any means that was clearly depression but because in, in that generation in that society you just dealt with it that this this stiff upper lip but business and so now that we are as a generation with podcasts like these and, and, and with the articles like yourself that you've written trying to turn that ship ever so slowly you get some of the old schoolers who is who go oh well this is just a weaker generation because like you said they haven't had to go through the holocaust or they haven't had to do this they haven't had to go through the great depression and yet here they all are depressed and we're in the best time in human history and to that point that you made is that it isn't depression olympics we can we all if you're not struggling that is a beautiful thing and rejoice in that fact but if you are struggling even if it's for what you would think of as a silly little thing like Jim said, you, ha you have to accept it because otherwise if you don't accept it, you can't even begin to work through it. Right. And, and what you've done by, by reaching out on Twitter and, and all of this, despite your own family history, which let's be honest, your family history is probably a lot more traumatic than most of ours. You actually had, I would say the courage to reach out on Twitter and to accept that you're feeling this way in 2020 or 2019 and the fact that your grandmother went through auschwitz that's neither here nor there do you know what i mean it doesn't lessen your own experience and i think that's a thing something that we should really try to get across to people listening that you should just forget about comparing people and other people's stories because like you said there will always be someone worse off which will then make you feel like a sport right it's happened to me before i'm complaining and i'm going what am i complaining about look at my life but then i was like yeah but i still even though i have these comparisons and i know people who are worse off than me that doesn't make me feel better it actually just makes me feel even more depressed you know i think for sure and i think um you know depression and, and other mental health issues are indiscriminate they they don't think oh well, you live in a nice house and two <laughs> yeah. half kids and a dog and you know i'm not going to come knocking on your door it can happen <laughs> to anyone um and i actually you know i had an experience a few years ago where i'm very, very unfortunately i lost a good friend to suicide 
um, and the Daily Mail decided to cover it. Um, and the Mail made the whole article about, you know, she was privately educated and her house was worth this much and her father earned this much. The whole point of the article being, look at how privileged she was. How could she possibly have been struggling? Um, yeah. And you see that a lot in the media, um, not across the board. And, and I think it is getting better. Um, but a lot of people find it hard to think, how could somebody who's in an economically privileged situation struggle? And those two things have nothing to do with each other. Yes, if you're economically privileged, you might have access to better, you know, therapy or healthcare, which which might help you down the line. But it's not going to affect whether you do or do not become depressed. Mm, yeah, you see it a lot with footballers. I think is probably the key example, like the the clearest example of it, where actually these people have come from very nor most of them have come from working class backgrounds. They become millionaires and then they suffer depression with depression. And if they come out, I think things are starting to change now because we've had a few footballers who have come out with it. Danny Rose springs to mind in a few and it's become a bit more accepted. But the initial response, if you go on Twitter, for example, and you read some of the comments, which I try never to do, but if you do happen to click on and then scroll down and read the comments, they're all like, how could you be depressed? You're a multimillionaire. Oh, I wish I was depressed earning 300 grand a week and this, that and the other. And it's like, if only, I mean, we've spoken to, I, I call him our Rafiki, um, Adam Starr, who's like, he's a Buddhist teacher. And we were talking about the ideals of success and what that means. And I think in this, the Western culture, we still look at success as financial gain. So, it, so for example, we would class someone as Danny Rose, for example, as successful because he earns however much he earns a week. But then we won't class a, a poorer person who is just really happy in themselves. They're a failure because they're poor. And it's like, well, actually, if we change the metric and if we looked at success through happiness and through a contentment in ourselves, then the whole, like you said, the money argument would, or the private schooling or whatever, would go completely out of the window because we all know, realistically, we all know that actually money and, and personal circumstance doesn't really affect happiness and, and how comfortable you feel within yourself. Um, but I, yeah, I also I think, think it, de it dehumanizes mental health. I mean, this idea that, oh, this person has depression, but we need to pre like pretext this depression with her schooling or her social status or the things she has it's like no just look at this at a human level this is another human experiencing depression why do we need these other things you know mm. yeah, you're right do, do, do you i mean you've gone through it with your friend um and you were close to uh what well, you said you, you didn't have the will to live anymore so now that you you're kind of very uh you've been very close to this the suicide theme and you've written about it do you see it as in some circumstance your responsibility as a journalist with the power that you have with the pen or should i say the keyboard these days to to get that out there and to try and, and through your through not obviously every article but through the articles when it's necessary to try and change that that public discourse and that opinion about suicide and then i mean take it back a bit further depression and mental health yeah i do feel a duty um I'll be honest with you, when I write these articles, I often need a bit of convincing um, to write them, to have them published, for me to share it on my social media. Every step, I feel real dread and anxiety about every single time because it's not comfortable to, you know, share these things with the world. You don't know how many people are going to see it, who's going to see it. 
and I, I feel really uncomfortable doing it every time. Um, and I build it up to be this sort of, you know, unbearable experience. And then it's never as bad as I expect. And I always get messages after from people saying, thank you. I've struggled with this. You, you, I'm glad that you're talking about it, which make it all worthwhile. So I think if I do have, you know, a platform of any sort, I would like to use it to be able to sort of break that stigma a little bit. Um, but I think we all have a duty if we can. I don't think it's only journalists. I think, mm. you know, be it having conversations at, with our family, with our friends or in the workplace, opening up about our experiences and making a non-judgmental environment where other people can, can open up is hugely, hugely important if we are to sort of face this stigma head on. Mm. Well, and it will be uncomfortable like it was for me, but yeah. it won't be in the long run. Yeah. Well, with that said, I'd like to thank you, I mean, for sharing your experience on this podcast, because I'm sure there must have been kind of revisiting some parts of your own journey must have been um, uncomfortable, but like you said, needed. Um, and it's the duty of all of us. And that's why Jim and I have these conversations, because whilst we're not journalists, I think that you said it's the duty of every member of society to try and be a bit more empathetic. Um, you, you, you touched on you touched on it recently. Uh, sorry, it, earlier on in the podcast, but to kind of get like a final thing. Um, how do you keep on top of your mental health? You mentioned the therapy is, is a key thing for you. Are there any other little steps um, that you do that really help keep things in top shape or, or when you see that you're kind of going down into the spiral to help you pull yourself back out of it? Oh, I'm going to sound so LA hippy dippy, <laughs> but it's, you know, we're all for like meditation it. and exercise and healthy eating. Those things are all good. Certainly mm -hmm. does no harm, but I think it's about um, connecting to some of, you know, those, those pleasures you have that, that are sort of more deep and meaningful so be that reading or playing with your animal, animals and pets or, you know, volunteering, whatever. If there's something that really fills you with joy and with meaning, then do that as often as you can. Um, I try and volunteer because I think that makes me feel good about myself and that makes me realize that, you know, I've got a purpose and I'm helping other people. Um, I try and exercise although it's going to be hard when it starts getting dark and cold. <laughs> yeah. Um, I try and eat healthily. I, I try and meditate and do mindfulness exercises. And like I said, I try and talk to friends and have positive interactions with them as often as I can, because I think it's really important to remind yourself that you're not alone and you, you are part of a community of some sort and you can sort of create that community if you like. Uh Thanks for that, Josh. And just before we leave you, for, for anyone who, who may be a sort of feeling like you felt before, not really having a will to live, and maybe they weren't, maybe they don't have a, as big of a following as you on social media, is there anything that you would say to them? Keep going. It might sound now, it might feel to you now like there's, you know, it's, things aren't going to get better and your life is always going to be this dark. It won't be. Things will get easier. This doesn't last forever. Um, I remember feeling like there was no end to the pain I was going through. And I'm sitting here now on the other end. And of course, I have rough days here and there, but they don't last. That's not the norm. And you will have great days and you'll have days filled with joy and you'll have meaning and purpose. And and it's it's just worth, worth it to keep going and keep fighting. Um, I think that's what I would say.
Well, that's, that's beautiful, especially given it's kind of full circle, right, from where you've come from to say that now. I think anyone who's um, listening to that and maybe, like Jim says, in the position where they haven't, haven't got a will to live, to see that full circle is is really inspirational. For someone who, who's who's listening to this um, and thinks, I want to know more about this Josh fella, where can they follow you on Twitter? Because I know you've got a good Twitter feed. You share, obviously, your articles, which are great, but you also share a few um, a few uh, funny tweets as well. Maybe there's a bit of a budding comedian under that journalist. Uh, oh, maybe. There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you like talk about mental health and, and crappy memes, you can follow me on Twitter at <laughs> Mr. Josh Z. Um, I'm also on all other platforms, but I'm not very good at them, so don't bother following me there. <laughs> Perfect. Well, well, we'll definitely tweet you when when we release this, and we'll put that in the show notes. Um, but for now, Josh, thank you for your time. I really, really appreciate having you on. Thank you. You're, you're both doing really great work. So, so thanks for for talking to people like me. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week, but until then, keep safe and have a good one.